You are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church Carlisle, a local church in the south end of Louisville, Kentucky. For more information about the life of our church, visit us at SojournCarlisle.com. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is from Numbers 13, uh, assorted verses, so I'm not going to read them all to you. Um, If you would, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, send men to scout out the land of Canaan. I am giving to the Israelites. Send one man who is a leader among them from each of their ancestral tribes. Moses Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the Lord's command. All the men were leaders in Israel. Picking up in verse 17. When Moses sent them to scout out the land of Canaan, he told them, Go up this way to the Negev, then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. Is the land they live in good or bad? Are the cities they live in encampments or fortifications? Is the land fertile or unproductive? Are there trees in it or not? Be courageous. Bring back, bring back some fruit from the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and scouted out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rahab near the entrance of Hamath. Skipping down to verse 25, at the end of 40 days, the spies returned from scouting out the land. The men went back to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back a report for them and the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They reported to Moses, we went into the land where you sent us. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey, and here is some of its fruit. However, the people living in the land are strong, and the cities are large and fortified. We also saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites are living in the land of the Negev. The Hethites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, Let's go up now and take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it. But the men who had gone up with him responded, we can't attack the people because they are stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. The land we passed through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed the same to them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. For those who don't know me, my name is Nick Wirens. Um, I serve as the associate pastor here at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Um, it's officially been like two months since I've preached, so who knows what's going to happen today. I get excited. It's kind of like when your friend who talks a lot, you know, you ask them to be quiet for a little bit, and then at the end of the conversation, they just go all which ways 
when you don't preach for two months. You never know what'll happen. Um, But I'm excited to be with you all this morning to be able to preach God's Word. It is a blessing and a joy um, and an honor to be able to open up the Scriptures with you. Um, This morning, for those who haven't been around, we're continuing in our sermon series entitled Desecrated. Um, So we're coming off the heels of a sermon series called Sacred, where we looked at Genesis 1 through 3, looking at um, how God created this world, how it was intended to be. What was its purpose? Why did God create, and how did he create? Now in this sermon series, Desecrated, we're largely trying to understand the question, what went wrong? What about this world feels like it's not quite the way it's supposed to be? Of course, the the world has many theories to offer, but Scripture has one, and the answer is sin. So over the, over the last few weeks and then moving forward, what we've been doing is unpacking what sin looks like in its many faces, its many aspects. So today we'll be looking at sin as unbelief, sin as unbelief. But before we dive into our text today, let's pray. God, we do thank you uh, that we get to gather together as your people Psalm 133 says that um, it's beautiful when brothers and sisters live in harmony harmony together, so I thank you that we can gather together as your people and do just that, that we can honor you by uniting together and communing with one another. God, as we continue to um, move along in our sermon series, looking at a hard and weighty topic, the doctrine of sin, I ask that as heavy as it may be for us, that your spirit would give us hope, (laughs) that in the midst of darkness we can see glimmers of light. I do ask God that as we study your word together, that it would convict us, that it would challenge us, that we wouldn't just read it and uh, walk away unexamined or or, um, unchallenged in any way, but that we would read your word and allow it to uh, cut through our ligaments and sinews, as it says in Hebrews. God, your word is powerful. Your word speaks for itself. In spite of Uh, In spite of me, in spite of uh, us as pastors, your word will go forth and not come back void. And so we ask this morning, God, that it would do just that. Pray, Jesus, that we would have hope and confidence in you as we continue to look at sin and how it affects us. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So our text today is from the book of Numbers. If you made it past Leviticus in your reading plan, maybe you're there right now and good on you. Well done, good and faithful servant. If you didn't, that's okay. That's okay. You can start next year again. Um, but Numbers, right, it's the fourth book in Israel's origin story, okay? So there's three books ahead of it. You know, it's like season one, Genesis, season two, uh, Exodus, season three, Leviticus. So to unpack, I'm sorry there's spoilers here, let you, to catch you up where we are in the story. Genesis, right, God makes a promise to this man named Abraham. He's the father figure, if you will, of all of Israel. And God specifically promises that his descendants will be given this special land called Canaan. And it will be fruitful. It will be glorious, filled with milk and honey, as it says in Scripture. It says that the nations will be blessed through this man named Abraham. 
So God does bless Abraham. He grows his family, but the end of Genesis, we know it, it ends with uh, about 70 years descendants on the, on the run as refugees in Egypt. Then we pick up in season two. Maybe you binge watched Genesis season one. Now season two, Apple's releasing it one week at a time. You got to go a little slower, okay? The nation of Israel has grown. They've been enslaved by their Egyptian overlords. And God sends a special man, a prophet named Moses, who speaks on God's behalf to both Israel and, and Pharaoh. God eventually frees Israel, and he leads them to a mountain in the wilderness called Mount Sinai, where he makes a special agreement with them. They promise to follow his commands, and he promises to dwell among them, to be present with them, which is important for our story today. He promises to give them blessing and protection. Then, season three of the Pentateuch, if you will, the book of Leviticus, it focuses on how a nation of mortals, how can created beings, one now stained with sin, how can they live with and in the presence of a God who is holy? Now we pick up in in season four in, in the book of Numbers, and we see Israel is on this long and arduous journey through the wilderness, marching towards the land that God had promised to give them. They're living on a diet of rice cakes and water, and now they're on the precipice of entering this beautiful land. So as they stand really at the the doorstep of Canaan, that's where we pick up in our story. Numbers 13, 1 through 2, if you have a Bible, you can check it out there. It should be in your bulletin. It's also on the screen behind me. This is where the story that we're looking at today begins. Says the Lord spoke to Moses, Send men to scout out the land of Canaan. I am giving to the Israelites. Send one man who is a leader among them from each of their ancestral tribes. So, so Moses does it, right? Moses, this great man, this prophet that was sent to Israel, he does exactly as God has commanded. He sends out 12 spies, one representing each tribe. That maybe think of like the original Lewis and Clark expeditions, like if every state in the original 13 colonies picked one dude to go and like explore the land with them, that's what's going on here. They're sent out to go and see the land. Now this mission, it's not some random mission to just scope out like, hey, what could be there? This mission is actually backed up by a promise. Okay, this is like taking your kids to, to Black, it's not like taking your kids to Black Friday, telling them to look at toys they might get. It's more like Christmas Day where you're telling them to go downstairs and see the toys that are already there, the presents that have already been given to them. God has promised this land to the Israelites. And these spies being sent out, they're being sent out to see that which is already promised to them. Now, it's important to remember that this isn't the first time Moses or the Israelites are hearing this promise, right? Exodus 3.8, and I've come down, God says, I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, Again, Exodus 3.17, God reiterates, and I have promised, past tense, I have promised you that I will bring you from the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Again, God, Exodus 13, 5, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, which he swore to your ancestors that he would give you, a land flowing with milk and honey. If that's not enough for you, Exodus 33, I'll send an angel ahead of you and will drive out the Canaanites. Exodus 33, 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. And then yet still in Leviticus, and I promised you, God says, you will inherit their land since I will give it to you. I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who set you apart from the people's. Y'all, there was no chance of the Israelites missing this promise, right? It's not like they missed one day of class and then they were lost. Like, I still don't know my my days of the week in Spanish because I missed that day of class. Like, I swear, I vividly remember that. No idea, right? There was no chance that they missed this promise. It had been said, reiterated time and time again, I am going to give you the land and it's going to be awesome. Now notice that in every reminder here, right, the promise actually contains two aspects to it, right? One is that the land would be incredibly bountiful and fruitful, and two, that it would be their land. So every reminder had the same twofold promise to it, that the land would be incredibly bountiful and fruitful, and that it would be their land, the Israelites' land that God had given them. So the spies, they they go on this long 300 to 400 mile journey. It's 40 days long. They went all the way to the top of Canaan and all the way back. Maybe think like walking to Indy and back. At some point in their journey, we get a little picture of how fruitful the land is. And I love this so much. Uh, Numbers 13, 23, we didn't read it, but uh, it's in scripture. It says, when they, the spies, came to the Eshkol Valley, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes which was carried on a pole by two men. They also took some pomegranates and figs. I tried to find like the world's biggest grape bunch, but the the pixel size was way too small and it wouldn't work, but they're huge, right? So, and imagine like the fruitfulness of this land, like they found a grape bunch so large that they had to like strap it on a pole and like have two guys like hut, hut, hut walking around, right? Like it's really fruitful, y'all. It's like these dudes are sent out to go get chicken nuggets from Chick-fil-A and they come back and they bring the catering trays, right? It's like, yes, it's heavenly amounts in this new land that we're going to. Lots of grapes. Lots of grapes. Thank you. <laughs> so they head back, okay? 40 days. They're, they're probably not doing a great job at like hiding themselves with guys carrying the world's biggest grape bunch, but um, somehow they go undetected, They come back, they give this report to Moses, Aaron, and the whole crew, all of Israel, and they physically, right, they show them the evidence of the fruitfulness of this land. Verse 27, it says, we went into the land where you sent us, Moses. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey. And here, this giant bunch of grapes, some figs, pomegranates, here is the evidence of how fruitful the land is. The Israelites are pumped, right? The shouts of glee start to erupt from tribe to tribe. They can taste the grapes and the figs and the pomegranates. But the spies go on. They say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold However, wait a second. The people living in the land are strong. The cities are large and fortified. And we also saw the descendants of Anak there. Like, oh man, now there's a problem. 
those evil giants from Genesis 6 that are like half human, half fallen angel. They're, they're Israel's historic arch nemesis throughout all of Scripture. They're there. The shouts of, of Jubilee, they turn to murmurs. The visions of grape clusters as big as your head, uh, they, they turn to fears of war and decimation. But Caleb, from the tribe of Judah, no accident there, he calms everyone down. He says, guys, guys, wait. We can do this. Let's go up now and take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it. Verse 31, the the, the men who had gone up within the other 10 spies, they responded, no, 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 we can attack the people because they're stronger than we are. So they spread this negative report about the land that they had scouted. The land we, we passed through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are, are men of great size. They're, they're huge. We even saw the Nephilim there. The, the descendants of Anak come from that line. To ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed the same to them. How, how could the sons of Anak be there? How could the Nephilim be in Canaan? This is, this is the land that God had promised. What happened? How could God do this to us? Now all the hope that they had in the lands that they were going to, all the hope they had in their hearts was now snuffed out. The entire community was now in utter despair. Moving on in Numbers 14, this is what we read. Then the whole community broke out into loud cries, and the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole community told them, if only we died in the land of Egypt, or if only we maybe even died in the wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and our children would become plunder. Wouldn't it just be better for us to go back to slavery in Egypt? The place that we find Israel is a dark place. What a a place of desperation to literally want to go back into slavery. (laughs) Can you imagine feeling so defeated at where you were in life that you would rather go back to be subjugated by the people that abused you, mistreated you, tried to chase you down and kill you? This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Now I want to kind of pause and before we finish out the story of Israel, which honestly it it gets darker, (laughs) But I want to pause and start to apply the story for us thus far, and then as we kind of walk along in application, look at how the story of Israel ends. So I want to take a moment to to help us um, to start to understand unbelief and what it is, what happens. Now, understanding doubt and and unbelief is tricky, right? Because on the one hand, we're called to put our full trust in God at all times and all things. But on the other hand, we simply can't do that as broken, sinful vessels limping on the journey of sanctification. 
So as I walk through this, I, I want to do my best as I go along to, to nuance a little bit, right? This isn't like a just, just trust and believe, trust and obey, and you're good, right? Like, it's more complicated than that. And so um, I hope, uh, by God's grace, I can nuance unpacking unbelief, because even in Scripture, right, we see two different sides of unbelief and what it can look like. So bear, bear with me as we, as we walk along, more nuance will come. But I think the first thing that we see in, in helping to understand unbelief is that trusting in part of God's promises is not fully trusting in God. Trusting in, God's, trusting in part of God's promises is not fully trusting in God. So one of the key things, as I said earlier, to understanding our text is, is that God's promise every single time had two parts to it. Every time God promised that the land Israel was going to get was going to be fruitful. And he promised that he would give it to them. He, he didn't say anything about giants or no giants. Didn't say anything about fortified cities or no fortified cities. Didn't say, I mean, really anything about pomegranates, no pomegranates, right? He just promised it would be fruitful. So the promise is two-parted, right? It would be fruitful, it would be theirs. What had happened is Israel had split God's promises in half. Do you see that? So in the story, they they literally had evidence. (laughs) Two dudes carrying a giant grape bunch. They had evidence of the promise on their backs. They had figs and pomegranates to show that God's promises was true. They had confirmation that the land was fruitful. So because it was one part of the promise meant that the other part of the promise had to be true too, right? If the land is fruitful, then surely this is our land that God is giving us. So it's important to see that this was one singular promise given to Israel in two parts. So if one part was true, surely the other part was true with it. Which means on the flip side, as we think about unbelief, if Israel doesn't believe a part of the promise, then that means they reject the promise as a whole. Do you see that? Trusting in part of God's promise is not fully trusting in God for the whole promise. Second thing that we see thus far in our story about understanding unbelief is that trust in God, or kind of the counter of unbelief, is often tested when there's skin in the game, (laughs) right? Now, it's interesting to me, like, we we see the report given to the Israelites um, and that there really isn't any point of unbelief until Caleb comes in, right? It's just kind of straightforward facts, some commentators, they, they do argue that the spies um, are exaggerating the report, right? It's like when you're trying to get someone to, like, I don't know, to agree with you, you know, you like exaggerate maybe a little bit. You're like, well, we can't go there. There's, there's giants, <laughs> right? There's some big dudes there. We can't go. You exaggerate a little bit, but I, I don't know that that's true, right? It's like if, if the spies were lying, like surely Caleb and Joshua would have said, like, you guys are lying, right? That's part one. Oh, Deuteronomy, we see Moses recounts the report, right? He says, but you were not willing to go up, talking to the Israelites. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord brought us out of the land of Egypt to 
hand us over to the Amorites in order to destroy us because he hates us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart, saying the people are larger and taller than we are. The cities are large, fortified to the heavens. We also saw the descendants of the Anakim there. So I said to you, don't be terrified of them, terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will fight for you just as you saw him do for you in Egypt. So even Moses himself, right, he doesn't uh, refute the report. So it seems, right, that the report that they give is accurate. There really are these giants there in the land. There's these scary people there. They have fortified cities. But what happens, right? (laughs) The report is just kind of, it is what it is. And then Caleb's like, let's do it! And they're like, whoa, Caleb, chill! We can, right? So when I was in college, right, I, uh, I worked as a ropes course instructor, which if you're like, oh, let's go climbing, this is not a climbing body, right? <laughs> like being a ropes course instructor is like camp counseling at 50 feet in the air. So that's why I was good at it. That's why I did it, right? But anyways, nonetheless, neither here nor there. Uh, I was a ropes course instructor. And kind of the maxim that we use with people is like, you just got to trust the ropes. <laughs> you have to trust the equipment, okay? Everyone's really brave when their feet are on the ground. <laughs> they're even still a little bit brave when they're like hanging, like looking down, like, I can't let go, right? There's still a little bit of bravery there when they're hanging on the wall, and then their wrists give out, you know, they cramp and stuff like that, so they have to let go eventually, right? But the maxim remains the same. You, you just have to trust the equipment, okay? For... <laughs> For the Israelites, right, they, they, they weren't trusting truly in God. They weren't trusting in the equipment, right? Just like people 40 feet in the air, you just have to really, at one point, let go, trust that the rope, and then this 20-year-old college dude at the bottom is going to save your life, <laughs> right? It's like, that, that, that requires a lot of trust. But what I'm trying to get you to see is like, when there's skin in the game, that's when trust is really tested, Right? It's like if we're standing on, on this side, looking over the land, they're like, well, there's giants there, right? It's like, okay, that's cool. Now, when your uh, tribe leader says, we're going to go in there and take care of those giants, th- that's when the rubber meets the road, right? Trusting God, it, it hasn't changed for us. The, the same is true. It's easy to be obedient when, when you're not really being invited into something challenging or scary or sacrificial, <laughs> Do you see that? Trusting God's promise to provide isn't hard until your boss calls you into the office and says the company's making setbacks. That's when trust in God's promise of provision really becomes trust. Trusting God's promise that his path of righteousness is better (laughs) isn't really hard until sexual temptation comes knocking at your door. It's easy to trust in God's sexual ethic when the temptation's not there. Trusting God's promise to bring about true justice here in this world, it's not really hard until you see a dictator invade another country or you see somebody that looks like you on TV killed, right? That's when trust really becomes trust. Trusting God, friends, is often tested, if not always, when you have skin in the game. When it's hard, when it's scary, when it's actually sacrificial, it's costly. So when we have skin in the game, that's when our belief is often tested. 
hopefully this will bring a little bit of nuance. I, I, I think, um, and if you want to talk to me after this, we can. I, I, I personally don't think that the unbelief or the doubt itself is sinful. But I think it's what happens with that unbelief that really draws the line of sin or not sin. And I think there's two pathways that we can take when we're faced at this kind of juncture of unbelief. Right? Unbelief can lead to despair and defiance, which I would argue is sinful and the wrong pathway, or it can lead to dependence. Why do I think that? Well, the reality is that we all have unbelief and doubt at junctures in our life, if not like daily, right? I think that's the very definition of like obedience and faith testing. It's like if obedience was easy, like we wouldn't ask questions, but then we'd probably be like robotic, uh, whatever, automatrons, right? It's like your AI is not going to rebel against you yet, right? Elon Musk says otherwise, but... Uh, anyways, every opportunity or invitation from God, it, it inherently brings up the question, do I trust God or not? Am I willing to choose the path of life or not? I think that's inherent in every choice, right? It's, there's a question that comes with it of belief or unbelief. Do, do I believe God's power is big enough or not? Do I believe God's unfailing love to be unfailing or not? (laughs) Is it really unfailing? Do I believe God's provision to be enough or not? In all opportunities for obedience, we are presented with a choice of belief or unbelief. So when we choose belief or trust, right, we're kind of at a juncture. Every question begs the question, do I believe If we choose belief, we we are choosing dependence, which is good and beautiful and right. The path that we should choose, right? God honors that. We see that throughout Scripture, right? Mark 9, it's a a story about a demon-possessed boy. His father brings his son to Jesus to heal him. And the father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. (laughs) This is one of my favorite lines of scripture, but help my unbelief. God, I'm there, but help me be all the way there. The man says, yes, Jesus, I believe that you can heal my son, but I'm still sinful. Help the human sinful parts of me that can't believe you, God. What does Jesus do? He honors that man's request. He doesn't say to the man, like, unbelief? What kind of unbelief you got next, right? He embraces the man where he is. What about in John 20, one of Jesus' disciples, likely a man of great faith, we would say, he, he missed out on seeing the resurrected Jesus. His friends are telling him, like, Bro, he was here. Like, we touched him. He's like, never. I will never believe that he is back from the dead unless I touch him with his hands. Jesus, you know, does some crazy Jesus stuff, walks through a wall. He's there. (laughs) And then what happens? Jesus doesn't say, Thomas, like, bro, come on. You're out of the tribe. 
because you didn't believe. He invites him in. He says, hey, it's me. <laughs> what, what are you going to do with your unbelief, Thomas? How about bringing it here? <laughs> Touch my side. Feel for yourself. Friends, the right response to unbelief is dependence. It's, it's stepping out in faith, letting go of the rock wall and allowing the rope and uh, 20-year-old to, to catch you, right? Now, the other pathway, and this is where we start to pick up Israel's story again and see how it concludes. The other pathway to unbelief, I think, is despair and defiance. It's exactly what we see the Israelites do. Numbers 14, uh, 1 through 2, you can read on the screen with me. It says, Then the whole community broke into loud cries, and the people wept that night after they heard the negative report. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole community told them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or, or only if we just died in the wilderness on this long journey that we've been on. They, they were in utter despair. Their, their unbelief has put them in a place where they legitimately believe being dead would be better than to be alive and have to fight these scary giants. And the story really gets darker from there. Their despair, it, it takes them into this dark hole of defiance, uh, which I would argue for them is almost a complete rejection of God. In Numbers 14.4, it says, So they said to one another, the Israelites, let's appoint a leader and go back to to Egypt, right? There's defiance and self-reliance, right? They're like, we'll figure this out. Moses and Aaron, who God gave us, like, they're not cutting it. Let us pick a leader. We'll go back and do what we're going to do. But it gets darker, darker still, right? God then tells Moses, he says, all right, if they won't go into the land, I'll give them the desires of their heart. Right? If they say, okay, we'd rather die in the wilderness, then I'll turn them over to that. I'll let them die in the wilderness. I'll let them experience what death in the wilderness looks like. And because of that, God says to Moses, they now can't go in the promised land. That's important. They can't go into the promised land yet. The circumstances have now changed. The, the land that was once ready for them to go into is now not ready. Okay? It's done. That ship has sailed, as God is saying. The window's closed. So Moses reports back to the people what God said, and what do the people do? <laughs> it says in Numbers fourteen thirty nine, they were overcome with grief. They got up, verse 40, they got up the next morning, went up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, let's go to the place the Lord promised, for we were wrong. Moses tries to warn them. <laughs> He says, guys, things have changed. God is not going with you if you go there. So we have to wait. But you see here, like, man, it's a tough passage, right? Because they're like, well, they said they, they said they were wrong. Like, aren't they repentant? It's like, they're not repentant, right? Because they're rejecting God. <laughs> they said, yeah, we're wrong, but we're still going to do whatever it is we want to do. Moses is trying to warn them. He's saying, guys, do not go there. If you go there, God's not there yet. The things have changed because of your sin. He's saying, don't go. Please don't go. As I said earlier, Israel's defiance has become self-reliance. They're doing their own thing now. Look at how their story of unbelief tragically ends. 
Numbers 14, 44 to 45, it says, But they dared to go up to the ridge of the hill country, even though the ark of the Lord's covenant and Moses did not leave the camp. God's presence, they, Moses told them it wasn't going with them. What happens, the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the part of the hill country came down, attacked them, and routed them, destroyed them, decimated them. This, this is a picture of like, it's the dark trajectory that unbelief can lead us down. It's, it's intense, it's, it's scary, it's ugly. But I think it's often in the deepest, dark, the deepest darkness that the light shines the most. So let's, let's see if we can. It's like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do with that? Holy smokes, right? But let's look at the passage again. I, I think as we look at God's word, we can find hope in our unbelief. The first thing that I want us to see is that punishment with God's presence is better than anything without it. Let me say that one more time. Punishment, yikes, punishment with God's presence is better than anything without it. Numbers 14, it is, I would argue, one of the like, most tragic chapters in the story of Israel. They're, they're right there on the precipice, so close to experiencing the life, the riches that God has promised them, but their unbelief, and as Brother Jarvis said last week, their stiff-necked nature, right, it reared its ugly head again. Now, I've said before, uh, I know at least once in a sermon, probably more in smaller settings, but I always, this is like a personal thing, I always want to humble myself so God doesn't have to. I I said that one time in a sermon, and Brother James, Pastor James and I were talking, and um, he said uh, very gently and kindly and wisely, he's like, I hear you, and I, I think that's right and true, but... God is even more gracious to us in his punishment than we are to ourselves, <laughs> right? E- even punishment with God is better than anything without it. And I think we see that exactly in, in this story, Numbers 14. Look at verses 26 to 31 with me. It's long, but stay with me. It says, then the Lord, this is after Israel's like, Moses and Aaron, y'all are out. Uh, we're, we're holding a coup, new leader, Uh, We're going to do what we want. Here's what God says to Moses and Aaron. How long must I endure this evil community that keeps complaining about me? I've heard the Israelites' complaints that they make against me. Tell them, as I live, this is the Lord's declaration. I will do to you exactly as I heard you say. If you want to die in the wilderness, I will turn you over to that, right? As Romans 1 says, I'll let you live the life you want to live. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness, and and all of you who are registered in the census at the beginning of Numbers, the entire number of you, 20 years old or more, because you've complained about me, you will die in the wilderness. I swear that none of you will enter the land I promised to settle you in, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. Now hear this. Look at God's generosity. I will bring your children whom you said would become plunder into the land you rejected, and they will enjoy it. God is, is, he's not taking the promise away. Do you see that? The promise still remains. 
The land will still be theirs, but again, it's like Romans 1 where it says that God will give people over to the the desires of their heart. If Israel wants to pursue its own whatever YOLO life, like do whatever you want, if they want to pursue that, that's fine. But they're not the ones now that are going to go into the promised land. And what else God does here, right? He says, the thing that you feared most, your kids becoming plunder, hey, let me take care of that for you. How gracious is that, right? The thing they feared most, their kids being taken for plunder, is the thing that God is actually uh, bringing his blessing through now. The, the Romans 1 idea, it, it can be hard at times, right? But it, it is kind of like a maxim of parenting. It's like sometimes you got to let your kids figure it out on their own, right? Sometimes God does that. He turns us over to the desires of our heart. It's like I can tell my sons a thousand times, don't jump on the couch, don't jump on the couch. And then it just takes Coop Man one time of like the slow motion tumble off the couch before he learns you don't jump on the couch. It's for your benefit. Like, I don't care. So you don't break your head open. The same thing is true in obedience with God. Sometimes when we become so rebellious, God really, we force his hand and he turns us over to our sin to say, okay, I've tried to show you the better way. I think what's beautiful here, right, in this passage <laughs> is that even if Israel, the Israelites die in the wilderness, God is still there. Do you see that? God, God isn't saying to them, y'all die here, I'm going that way. <laughs> he also, uh, yeah, he, he just says, stay here. We'll be here together, right? Things have changed. You're not going to see the, the glory. You're not going to taste the good giant bunches of grapes, or the pomegranates, or the figs. But even in their punishment, God does not leave them or forsake them. Do you see that? But man, it's so scary. Like a defiant child, Israel says, okay, now we'll listen and we'll go into the land. And you're like, no, no, the promise is not that way anymore. Moses tried to warn them in Numbers 14, 43. He says, the Lord won't be with you if you go up and do that. It harkens really all the way back to Genesis 2, 17 when, uh, when we, Moses is saying to the Israelites, if you do this, right, uh, if you eat from the fruit of the vine, or whatever, fruit of the tree, Moses is saying, if you do this, you will surely die. If you do this, you will surely die. Friends, the Israelites, they they had an option. (laughs) The option is called repentance, really, right? Like, they could accept God's judgment and continue to experience his presence or reject both his judgment and his presence. Even in the consequences of our own sin, God's grace abounds. Even in the consequences of our sin, friends, the actual worst thing that we can do is abandon God's presence completely. Punishment with God's presence is abundantly better than anything life has to offer without it. The choice that the Israelites had was to live in poverty as nomads with God or to go and try and be in the promised land without him. 
The latter always leads to death. Any path chosen without God leads to death. Not always physical, but spiritual. If you're here today and you're in deep, however you define that, you're in way too deep. I would encourage you to consider repenting, confessing and repenting from that. Confessing to God, to others, and turning away from it. Even knowing full well the consequences. The, the reason I can say that with confidence is that because no matter what happens, <laughs> right, God's presence is still with you if you're a child of God. There, there's no depth that you can go down to that he does not invite you back up from. You're not too far gone. You're not in too deep, however you define that or whatever that looks like. The invitation I think we see in this passage, again, is that punishment with God's presence is better than anything else without it. And friends, that should give us hope. I think that's how we see the, the gospel light and unbelief's darkness, right? That's the beauty of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So we have one who has come, who has overcome our unbelief, really on our behalf, for us. When our unbelief tells us, like, surely a perfect God can't allow sinful people to experience the good life without doing anything, right? <laughs> the cross of Christ says, no, it's true. When our unbelief says, surely God's unfailing love will run out at some point, right? <laughs> like, he's got to get too tired of dealing with me. Jesus' death, it screams, no. <laughs> it is true, believe it. Unfailing love is unfailing love. When our unbelief, it says like, surely the giants of sin, death, Satan, those things will prevail. Jesus, different than the spies, he goes ahead of us in the land, conquers them and comes back and says, it's done. It's finished. Friends, Hebrews 3, it, it talks about this passage in number. It, it talks about how God's people rejected him in their unbelief. But then Hebrews 4 goes on, and it shows us the beauty of the gospel. This is what it says in, in Hebrews 4. It says, therefore, since the promise to enter his rest, to enter um, Canaan is, is what he's kind of um, metaphorizing, if that's a word. Uh, since the promise to enter his rest remains. Let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them, since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. For we who have believed enter the rest. Friends, if you're here today, whether you're a Christian or not, I think the invitation remains the same. It's to enter into God's rest. To enter the land he has given us. To enter his joy, the, the flourishing life that he offers. To enter into the peace that he has that surpasses all understanding. 
And how do we respond to that invitation? (laughs) As complicated as it is, it's simple. It's belief. Acts 16, 31, I mean, it puts it as simply as it can be put. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You will experience my kingdom, the good life promised in Christ. Again, what's beautiful about our gracious God is that he doesn't, he doesn't demand perfection. Because let's be real, right? A perfect God redeeming sinful people and not requiring them to do anything. At times, it's hard to believe that, right? That's why all of us strive and labor and toil. Everything in us, it says, surely there's something I must do, God. But there's not. Simply believing it to be true and aligning your life with this reality. And what does living this reality look like? Well, I think like the father in Mark 9, it's constantly crying out to God, I believe God, but help my unbelief. God, I, I believe you're my provider, but, but help my unbelief when, when money's funny and times are tight. God, I believe in your goodness, but, but help my unbelief when my kids are like screaming in my ears and punching me. <laughs> God, I believe that your ways are right and true, but help my unbelief when it's hard for me to see it. Church, in the story of Numbers, uh, the, the evidence of God's promises that they were true <laughs> was a big old bunch of grapes hung up on a pole with two men on either side. I think for us, the church on this side of the cross of Christ, the evidence that God's promises are true, that we can experience true life and redemption is one man hung up on a pole with two men, criminals, on either side. It's no accident that when we gather together, we taste the fruit of the vine. As we do such together, we see, we taste, we believe that God's promises are true. He's given us the provision of Christ so that we can live and enter into his rest. Uh, Every week we gather together to celebrate this meal called communion. Again, it's a foretaste of Uh, the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's a reminder of what Christ has done for us. It's a way for us to see and experience and taste the provision of Christ's blood on the cross shed for us to redeem us and rescue us. If you want to partake in this meal, uh, there's individual communion elements in your pew backs. If you're here today and you're not a a Christian, a Christ follower, if you haven't um, committed your life to following his will and his ways, we'd ask that you not partake in this meal, not because we want to exclude you, but, um, but because this meal is for those who are about the reality of Christ. Um, so for those who do want to take communion, let's take this meal together now. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, um, Jesus took bread, he blessed it and broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat, this is my body. Let's take and eat this bread together. That same night, 
Jesus took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take and drink this cup together. Friends, Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and we drink from this cup, we're actually pronouncing Christ's death until he returns. We're announcing to the watching world that Christ is coming back. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a loving and gracious God, that you really are full of unfailing love. We thank you that even in your punishment, God, that if we have your presence, it's better than anything else life has to offer. I pray, God, even now that if somebody's here today that um, the Spirit is convicting them, (laughs) maybe they really do feel like they're in way too deep, irredeemable, If somebody knows or finds out that life will be over, um, I ask God that, I ask that by the power of your grace, you would remind them that that's not true. In spite of any consequence we we can experience in this world, God, as long as we have you and are walking in repentance and dependence upon you, that's enough. Jesus, we thank you that the best evidence that we have of that is your sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. That just as the 12 spies came back with a bunch of grapes to show that the promise was true, you hung up between two criminals, bleeding out (laughs) to show us that God's promises are still true. That the blood of the cross will wash us white as snow. And that now, as it says in Hebrews, we can enter into the throne room of grace because of your work on our behalf. We thank you, Jesus. And we believe, but help our unbelief. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor of Soldier and Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a multi-ethnic church that is firmly rooted in the diverse community of South Louisville. We are seeking to equip our members for gospel engagement and practical, effective ministry to the poor, the marginalized, and disenfranchised here in the South End of Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit our website or email us at info at God bless.